You know, this was a challenging sermon to prepare. Um, it may prove to be a challenging sermon for you to hear um, as well. Uh, so I just want to say at the outset that there's likely to be some disagreement um, with some things that I say. And we, we, do, we want that disagreement to result in some fruitful dialogue. So please, please do come dialogue with us about this uh, after the service, about anything that you disagree on. At very least, send me an email um, so that we can continue this dialogue going forward on this very important topic. Uh, but I did want to say one more thing at the outset, and that's that if you do find yourself feeling angry during this sermon, um, anger can be a really powerful tool to show us what's really going on in our hearts. So often our anger is an indicator that something we deeply, deeply treasure is being threatened or we perceive it to be threatened. And so as we feel that anger today, um, let that be an indicator to look in your heart and see what is it that I treasure that's being threatened first and foremost. Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I was naive uh, at 23 when I had my first full-time job, um, and I was sitting in one of my first staff meetings on the staff that I was on, and in this conversation of grown, respectable adults, um, the other men at the table began referring to young African-American men um, just casually using the N-word, and I was shocked because um, I didn't think that well-respected people talked like that. I didn't think that mature adults talked like that. But here I was in one of my first experiences in the real world, receiving a real awake, a rude awakening about the state of affairs. And now some, some of them might think, well, that was the South. Of course, that proves what we think about the South. The South is a racist place. Um, maybe. But some people who have experienced both the South and the North haven't had the same opinion that the South is necessarily more racist than it is here. Did you know Martin Luther King Jr., when he came up to Chicago, here's what he said. He said, I've never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hateful as I've seen here in Chicago. Did you know that Martin Luther King Jr. came four times to visit the North Shore specifically, to these suburbs where we live, and to address inequities and injustices that he saw taking place up here in our towns? Um, one of those times, uh, one of the incidents that he was addressing was uh, what happened here in Deerfield in 1959, actually. I know not all of you are residents of Deerfield, but uh, for some background, in 1959, in the summer, the village of Deerfield put out a parks referendum. They wanted to build some new parks, but it was met with lackluster, um, it was received with a lackluster appeal, and it didn't pass bottom line, in the summer of 1959. But then, over the next couple months, it was discovered that this developer who had bought some land out on Deerfield Road and was planning on building this subdivision of pretty high-end homes, even for Deerfield standards, this developer was planning on selling a couple of those units to qualified African-American families uh, who had the means to buy them. And suddenly, the village was in an uproar. Um, and for months, this went on town hall meetings with people angrily stating their opinions. And eventually, by the end of that year, 1959, the village had renewed the parks bill again. And this time the parks bill was 
going to be condemning the subdivision that had been bought by this developer and turning that land into parks. And suddenly, there's a 95% voter turnout in the village of Deerfield, and it passed two to one. And so if you've taken your kids over to uh, J.C. Park or Mitchell Park, that's where that land came from. That's where the village of Deerfield got that land. The uh, first African-American family to buy a home in Deerfield wouldn't do so until 1967. They have to wait eight more years as a result of that experience. Now, there's still newsreels. You can read all about this. You go to the Deerfield Library, there's newsreels that show video from those town hall meetings. And time and time again, what you see is residents of Deerfield saying, making it, wanting to be really clear that, listen, I'm for integration, just not here, right? Just not here, right? Just not, it's the NIMBY principle, right? Not in my backyard, right? It's everybody, I, I love black people. Don't get me wrong. I have black friends. You hear them saying these things, but, but not, but, We just don't think they should live here, right? Now, someone will say that was almost 60 years ago. Deerfield's different now. The North Shore is a totally different place. We don't have those same attitudes toward race anymore. And in some senses, no, we don't have those same attitudes toward race. Praise God. Um, You can't find a flyer like this in Deerfield anymore like you could in 1924, advertising the upcoming KKK rally that happened right here in this town. Um, you don't see newspaper articles like this one anymore that when someone wants to build a housing project, uh, housing project is expensive homes um, that involves residents of multiple races, they're accused of being communist. We don't see that anymore today. But on closer examination, I wonder if we would really find that we've made all that much progress? Or have we just gotten better at not having to face the issues that still exist? Right. So today's sermon is another in our series that's the Transforming the World series that we've been in since April. Every so often we come back for a standalone sermon every so often. It's a, it's a pressing issue in our day that we look at through a biblical lens. Um, so we've looked at immigrant and refugee issues. We've looked at sexuality issues over the course of this year. And today we're looking at race, uh, racism and the Christian. Um, we're going to look at several texts from the Bible during our time together today. Uh, the one that I want to start and end with, though, is in Ephesians 2. It'll be up on the screen. You can turn there if you want. It's in Ephesians 2, starting uh, with verse 14. The reason I want to look at this at the beginning and at the end is that it shows the connection that exists between our, maybe call it vertical, reconciliation with God and our horizontal reconciliation with one another, even across ethnicities. Let me read this, um, and please follow along as I do. This is speaking of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's Ephesians 2. Um, In the first instance, of course, Paul's talking about Jew and Gentile, right, being reconciled. But we'd ask the question that if the cross of Jesus Christ is able to reconcile Jew and Gentile, how much more is it able to reconcile some Gentiles to other Gentiles, right? In other words, the cross not only has implications for our vertical reconciliation with God, it also has implications for our horizontal reconciliation 
with one another. It's because of this cross, the same cross that purchased our salvation, our freedom from our sins. That same cross is where our hostility, our racial and ethnic hostility was killed. The cross of Jesus Christ purchased the unity that we have as brothers and sisters across ethnicities. We're going to come back to that idea before the end, but let's spend a few moments here just establishing the problem that we're addressing today. Um, Five years ago, some of us maybe wouldn't have thought that there was a need for a sermon like this in a Christian church to address race. Like, what's the problem? We have a black president now, you would have said. Um, What more work needs to be done? The only problem with race is that you're saying that there's a problem, right? But in the past five years, you know, we've seen images like this one. We've seen images like this one. Uh, We've seen videos after videos on the news of senseless violence against African Americans, especially. And so I don't need to convince you this morning that we have a problem when it comes to race. It's all over the news. And it's all over the news, not just about Ferguson and Charlottesville, right? It's about right here. You remember what was happening just a year ago at this time? Seems like forever ago, but the news, the national news was talking about our backyard, uh, New Trier High School, was scheduling a seminar day this time last year. Do you remember hearing about that? It was picked up by the Wall Street Journal and then several other uh, publications. Um, New Trier was going to have this seminar day to educate students about race. They were going to bring in all these speakers uh, to talk about race and justice issues throughout the day. Um, and uh, it gained national attention on both sides for what was going on that day. Uh, I don't bring it up to make some sort of evaluation this morning on whether New Cheer should have had that seminar day or if they brought in the right speakers for that seminar day. What I bring it up to bring up this morning is the, the parent website that came up uh, in, in conjunction with that seminar day, opposed to seminar day, right? The, the parent website that got national attention that exposed some attitudes that parents had about fears that they had about what their kids would be getting to hear at school. So the parent website's still up. You can still see it. And uh, my friends and family were texting me from all over the country asking me, is this real? And uh, you still see, I'll just put some screenshots up here. They took the program of events for seminar day and laid it out and they highlighted in yellow, these new true parents highlighted in yellow the things that they wouldn't want their kids to hear about at seminar day because, quote, they were divisive, loaded, biased, or bigoted. So these are things new cheer parents didn't want their kids to hear about. One, Latinos are often, uh, have a long history of contributing to U.S. culture and society, which is often ignored or glossed over. People didn't want their kids hearing about that. Two, can people living in a community like ours really understand the motivations and actions of a marginalized black community? People didn't want to hear, people don't want their kids hearing answers to that question. We'll work to recognize our own implicit biases. People had fears about their kids going to a seminar where they were working to recognize their own implicit biases. And then international adoptions often involve Asian children placed with white couples in the United States. This session will explore the question of identity for these adoptees who may feel a dissociation from their place of birth as well as the community in which they've been raised. People didn't want their children getting to hear about that. So you can see there's a great deal of fear even where we are Race issues are alive and well, even in our midst. Um, The national news is talking about even places 
uh, as insulated, so-called, as ours. And I know that you know that racism still exists, and not just from the news. You hear it when you go to the gym. Some of you have told me about comments you've heard even within the walls of this church over the years. And really, over the last year or two, it seems people have gotten more bold about speaking up and sharing comments that are prejudiced. Um, Maybe they've gotten more politically correct, uh, less worried about being politically correct, they would say. Um, A month ago, I was at the Verizon store, and I was waiting there, had my son, a man, Jewish man came up to me and uh, asked what my son's name was, and I said, Elijah. And uh, I think when he heard that name, he assumed that we were Jewish. Um, And so he started talking to me about how I need to bring Elijah to Jerusalem. Um, I'd love to bring Elijah to Jerusalem. So we were dialoguing about that, having a great conversation. And he said, but you know what's the only problem? That Israel right now is just surrounded on every side by savages. I can't even call them people. They're just absolute savages all around Israel. It's a reminder that this isn't just an issue of black and white that we're talking about this morning. Um, This is an issue when it comes to race and ethnicity. It's It's about a deep-seated preference that we have for our in-group, for those like us, and it's a diminishing of those unlike us. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not how I am. I'm I'm not a racist, you know. And I want to say, maybe you're not, but I want to say this morning from this pulpit and just acknowledge that I am a racist, and I have to confess that. And I'm a recovering racist, but I am a racist. A couple examples, that story of my first job and being at that table and hearing young African-American men being called the N-word, do you know what I spoke up and said at that moment? Nothing. Just a month ago at the Verizon store when I was there listening to this man talk to me about how basically all Arabs are savages, do you know what I said in response to him? Nothing. And whatever reasons I had for not speaking up, I'm part of the problem. Right? It's not just that I was failing to go above and beyond the call of duty to do something extra heroic in those moments. No, that was sin. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's sin. Bottom line, when I fail to speak up about what it's saying, I am responsible. I may not be as responsible as the person who's making the racist comment, But I am responsible. When I don't take that opportunity to initiate dialogue, I'm failing to do what Pastor Craig talked to us in a sermon about last week, confronting evil. It might be evil that that person's not even aware of, but they could become aware of it if I enter into dialogue with them. So, by our actions and by our inactions, by our words and by our silence, we are all in a situation where we bear responsibility for our participation in these systems that we're part of that are prejudiced and racist. Now, I said the word systems, and I know somebody probably got a little bit upset because you've been trained somewhere along the way that systemic racism, that's a bad word, that's something to stay away from, that's not real, systemic racism isn't a real thing. But when we say there's systemic racism... All we're saying is that racism doesn't just influence the actions of individuals, but it actually influences the structures or systems that are created by those individuals who have been influenced by racism, right? That shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. 
right? That none of us rise above our own sinfulness to create systems and structures that are perfect. Of course, the sins of our own hearts get into the systems and structures that we create. Um, let's talk about that for a second, systemic racism, uh, because it's an important place for us to go today, and it touches on a lot of what we see in Scripture. At the very least, we can agree in this room this morning that the systems and structures that have been in place in America for 360 of the last 400 years have been prejudiced against people of color, right? Just to name a few, slavery was a major system structure that was in place for a great portion of our nation's history until 1865 that was prejudiced. Uh, Then it was replaced by Jim Crow segregation that lasted until the 1960s that was prejudiced against people of color. We could talk about Japanese-American internment camps during World War II on the West Coast. Bottom line is, even if you think that systems and structures uh, stopped being racist in the 1960s, you still believe that for 360 of 400 years of our nation's history, for 90% of our nation's history, has been dominated by racist systems and structures. And that's no surprise to us as Christians because we have a doctrine of depravity, that our sin is pervasive. It goes beyond just what we do that's ill-intentioned to even when we're well-intentioned, we still sin. Uh, we, even well-meaning people, even well-meaning Christian people commit sins and are part of structures that are sinful. On Martin Luther King Day a few weeks ago, we celebrated that in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement, our nation made some gains in its systems and structures. In other words, our systems and structures of our country improved, became more honoring to God in so many ways, uh, upholding the dignity of every human being. But in order to make the case that there are no more sinful systems and structures in our country anymore, we'd have to make the case that in the 1960s we somehow identified every single system and structure that had been touched in any way by racism and then we perfectly dealt with all of them. Right? Besides just being mathematically improbable, we think about how in 1998, the state of South Carolina still had a ban on interracial marriage. Alabama took till 2000 to overturn it, and it wasn't anywhere close to unanimous when they did. A Christian university like Bob Jones University had a ban on interracial dating as recently as 1999. 1999 is when they finally struck that from their books. Um, so to think that somehow we figured all that out in the 1960s is just naive, Right? But let's just, think, let's just take it another step further if, and do a little thought exercise. What if the sinful systems and structures did stop in the 1960s? Why would we think that that's not still affecting people of color today? Of course it still affects people of color, right? Just because you stop the sinful system or structure doesn't mean the effects immediately stop, right? You'd never say that to a victim of abuse who was abused years ago, you'd never say to them, well, why are you still struggling with it now? Why is it still affecting your life now? Didn't it end, right? No, of course, no matter how much work you do, there's still going to be effects of that that go on for years and even get passed down to your children and grandchildren in some cases. And of course, it's no different on a large scale when the abuse isn't just individual, but it's in a system or in a structure when the whole system is abusive toward a group of people. We should expect the effects to continue for years and years after the system or structure is gone. Now, I know some of you are tired of talking about systems. You're like, systems are a political solution. Why would we talk about a political solution like systems 
here at a Christian church service, political solutions don't work. It's only heart change that will make a difference. Right? That's the dichotomy that's addressed, one of them that's addressed in this book called Divided by Faith. It was a landmark book that came out in 2001. Um, we actually have 10 copies of this book that we've ordered that are at Karen's desk that uh, people can check out. Um, Pastor Stephen Weathers has said that this is the most important single book that you could read after today's sermon to go deeper into some of these issues. But what was explored in this book is that white evangelicals and black evangelicals who are theologically very, very aligned in almost every way, nevertheless have very different opinions as to the solutions to our race problems in America today. So white evangelicals tend to think that the solutions should be individual. Like our race problems would get better if we all just made friends with somebody who was of a different race than us, right? That's a typical white response that they found in their research. Um, to what, what, how we fix our race problems. Black evangelicals, who again have a lot of the same theology, uh, tend to see things differently. They tend to be more skeptical that that would actually produce any kind of real change. They tend to say that there needs to be more cor- corporate change, more systemic and structural changes that need to take place in order to really make a difference in our issues. So as a white evangelical who reads that book, what that does for me is that it makes me less confident that when I am saying, well, it's just individual. If we can just get to one person's heart after another, after another, it'll make the difference that's needed. It makes me less confident that I'm right when I'm saying that because I'm listening to my brothers and sisters of color who are saying, no, we've seen that and it hasn't really made the change that it claimed that it would make. When I listen to my sisters and brothers of color, I hear them saying that my reasoning, this individualistic reasoning, is the same reasoning that was used during the segregation era as Christians justified not standing up for integration. Here's what I mean. During the era of segregation, you know that a lot of Christians said things like this. Well, I'm not going to stand up for integration because that's a political solution, right? The Christian response needs to be an individual response. It needs to be addressing people's hearts. So as long as I'm personally dealing with people of color in a way that's honoring to the Lord, then I'm good. I'm not going to wade into whether there should be segregation or integration. I'll just let that all play out, right? Our brothers and sisters of color today would say that's the same attitude that we're taking today, which makes us uncomfortable because we want to believe that if we were living back at that time, when segregation was in place, that we would have been on the forefront of pushing for integration because it's morally right. Most of us, I'm sure, would say in hindsight that a church that was refusing to speak out for integration back at that time was morally bankrupt. It was in sin. It was cowardly because the right thing to do was to integrate. Segregation was wrong, and a church that couldn't call that out and name it was in sin. Of course, it's easy to see that in hindsight, though, right? It's it's harder to see clearly about the issues that are going on in our own day. Um, but we do when we want to. What about abortion, right? Many of those who are the same people who would say today, don't talk to me about political solutions. Don't talk to me about structural, systemic solutions about race. It's all about the hearts of people. Many of those same people 
would not be upset at all if I got up here from this pulpit and said, we need a structural systemic change to abortion in this country. Roe versus Wade, we want to be overturned. We shouldn't allow babies to be killed anymore, right? I'm not advocating heart change when I say that, mere heart change, right? I'm advocating a systemic structural change because it's morally wrong to kill babies, right? And I should, right? We all know that it's right in some cases to stand up to change systems and structures that need to be changed and not just speak to individual hearts all the time. Sometimes, even though abortion is a political issue, we need to speak about it from the pulpit because it doesn't matter if it's political, it's moral right and wrong, and the church needs to have a voice there. We want that with abortion, but some of us are less convinced when it comes to issues of race. But we saw it in Amos this fall, didn't we? Amos didn't just address the individual heart. He addressed systems, structures that were broken, judges who were systematically depriving people of justice, corrupt business practices. That's a big structural, systemic thing. Debt slavery doesn't get much more systemic or structural than that. The Bible regularly calls out systems and structures in addition to individual hearts. Now, here's the thing that some of you brought up to me, though, during Amos this fall. You said, well, I didn't create the systems and structures. How can I be blamed for something that I didn't have a part in creating? And that is hard to swallow because individualism, for many of us, is the air that we've breathed since we were born in this country. Uh, we want to believe that our decisions are our decisions, and they will result in consequences that we feel and nobody else feels. Nobody else has to feel them for us, and we don't have to suffer the consequences for anybody else's decisions, right? Nobody gets punished for somebody else. Um, even the idea of a team running sprints because of the individual's bad actions today, that gets a coach fired in some places in our country today because people want only to be punished for what I did wrong, um, but for people from some other cultures, it's not so hard to grasp this idea of corporate responsibility or being responsible for what happens in a system. When, when people from other cultures read Joshua 7, for example, the story of Achan taking the devoted things and hiding them and then getting caught, who gets killed in that story as a result of Achan's sin? His whole family, right? But when the original readers read Joshua 7, they wouldn't have been troubled by that like some of us are. Because they recognize corporate responsibility. They recognize that on some level, Aiken's family had to be in on this in some small way in order for him to be able to pull this off. There are levels of complicity when you're part of a system. Not everybody is complicit to the same degree, but all members of, who participate in the system are complicit to some degree. Think about Nazi Germany as an example. Those who orchestrated the final solution the Himmlers, the Gorings, they are the most complicit for what happened, right? Then you have the soldiers who are carrying out orders, right, and actually executing Jewish people. They are very, very complicit in what happened. And actually at the Nuremberg trials, when they tried to say, well, I was just following orders, that was not accepted as an excuse at the Nuremberg trials. Those people were held to account for what they did. But I think most of us would also say, that there's some level of complicity that the ordinary townsperson had in Germany who drove by the barbed wire every day and could tell that there's something going on there that's not right. And hey, my Jewish neighbors to my left and right have disappeared over the last months, um, but didn't speak up to say anything. 
it's because of their silence that this great atrocity, one of the greatest genocides in world history, was able to happen. They bear some level of complicity, even the ordinary German people in this. And we can apply that grid of responsibility to any situation, any system or structure that exists. You're responsible to the degree that you participate, right? So some people are more responsible than others, but everybody involved in the system is responsible to some degree. That's why Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, make a note of that to read it later. Daniel apologizes, prays a prayer to God, confessing sins that he didn't personally commit. He's confessing the sins of his people, this wickedness, this rebellion, this failure to listen to the prophets. Many of the things he confesses, he didn't participate in personally. But he says, I'm praying for my confession for my sins and for the sins of my community, even my ancestors who went before me. Because he understands that he's a member of a community and he wants his community to receive favor from God. And he wants his community as a whole to be cleansed from the stain of that sin that has gone on for years and years. All of these are reasons why we as Christians should embrace this idea of corporate responsibility because it's part of our Bible. But the most important reason, the most important reason why we should embrace the idea of corporate responsibility, even though it means that we sometimes will be called to account for actions that we didn't directly orchestrate, the reason is that this is the deep logic that underlies our gospel. Corporate responsibility is the deep logic that underlies our gospel. I'm thinking of the way that Paul tells it in Romans chapter 5. I wish we had time to read all of verses 15 through 21, but maybe we'll just pick it up at uh, verse 18, I believe this is. Here's how Paul explains the gospel here in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's first sin, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So we were all condemned on the basis, not of our own sin first and foremost, but on the basis of Adam's sin. So one act of righteousness, that's the work that Jesus did on the cross. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that Jesus's, the many will be made righteous. That's the deep logic underlying the gospel for Paul, that Yes, we were called guilty for Adam's sin. That's the doctrine of original sin that Christians believe in. From the moment of our conception, we were sinful in our mother's wombs, as David says it, right? And we start, as individualists here in America, we start to get upset about that. How can I be called to account for something that I didn't do? I didn't have any say in whether Adam sinned or not. And we get all upset, right? But it's only because the logic works that way that Adam, as our federal head, as the head of the covenant that we're a part of, his actions are attributed to us. It's only because of that that the flip side can also be true, that when we're transferred out of the covenant of Adam into the covenant of Christ, with him as our covenant head, now his actions, his righteous actions are attributed to us as well. We can benefit from his righteousness, right? We should be grateful for corporate responsibility and that principle, because without it, we don't have any hope in the gospel. But as some of you have expressed to me in the months since we studied Amos, you said, well, it's stressful to think that I'd be complicit in racist structures and systems because I don't have time to research the policies of my city council and figure out which ones are good and which ones aren't good, right? How do, I'm going to be sinning all the time. Maybe you do have time to do more research. Uh, maybe you don't. Some of us need to open our eyes more to what's going on around us and ask more questions about what's really happening. 
uh, but the impulse is correct that we can't totally escape participation in sinful systems and structures in this world. Um, some Christians have made a valiant effort to do so. They knit their own clothes so that they won't buy anything that's made in a sweatshop, right? But in order to totally do away with sinful systems and structures, we'd have to totally leave this world. It's unrealistic. But that doesn't mean we can do nothing. Right? At the very least, we need to evaluate our participation, our contribution in the systems around us and make sure that we are advocates of racial reconciliation, that we are fighting for racial justice in more than just name only, right? In more than just word, but actually in deed, in reality, even when it costs us. And that's the key there, right? Even when it costs us. Because the rich young ruler was all in for what Jesus was offering, this eternal life that Jesus offered until it cost him, right? Until it cost him. Racial reconciliation has been that way for some of us. Maybe like five, seven years ago, it kind of became cool in some Christian circles to talk about racial reconciliation. So some of us kind of jumped on that bandwagon, right? And we started reading those kinds of books and talking that kind of language. But then eventually, as we leaned far enough into racial reconciliation, it started to cost us some. And for many of us, we found a new cause somewhere, something that wasn't going to be so painful or messy, right? Um, We turned our attention elsewhere. Um, For the rich young ruler, wealth was the treasure in his heart that he didn't want to part with. Um, And actually, for many of us, when we're dealing with racial reconciliation, our wealth, our physical treasure, might be the treasure that we aren't willing to part with either. After all, that was the case in Deerfield in 1959, right? That's why people didn't want black families moving into Deerfield, because it's going to lower our property values. and Don't mess with my wealth, right? If it's going to impact my bottom line, I don't want that to happen. It's the same thing at Wilmette today with the kind of ongoing debate about bringing in some low-income housing. Everybody's for integration in theory. It's just nobody wants it next door to us, right? But I guess I'm wondering, if, what if we as Christians were different? What if we were the ones who were willing to take the hit at least the possibility of a hit to our bottom line? And what if we were the ones who were the influencers in our neighborhood to turn popular opinion toward the value of diversity, even if it is going to cost us? Maybe for some of you, your idol isn't money. But whatever our idols are, if we lean far enough into racial reconciliation, those idols are going to get triggered eventually. It's just the way it works. It feels good to do Lydia home every month or so, right? You can do, you can engage in racial reconciliation work to that degree without it ever really hurting you or costing you, and that's fine. Um, but if you want to become an agent of reconciliation and you're engaging in these conversations and these dialogues and this work on a regular basis, it's eventually going to get to the point where it really hurts, where it really costs you, where it really rubs against your treasure in your heart, and you're going to want to quit. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Many of you white people know what I'm talking about. Many of you people of color know what I'm talking about, about wanting to quit. Because you just get to the point where you just, I want to take my ball and go home at this point. Because these people are just never going to understand me. And it's just far, far easier to just be with my own kind. For some of us white people, there's the added layer. You know what? I've spent so much time investing in this racial reconciliation thing. 
People should be grateful for what I've done. Not many people would make the sacrifices that I've made in this journey, right? Uh, I've got a best friend who's black, right? If they can't be grateful for the work that I've put in, the time that I've put into investing in racial reconciliation, I'm done with this. But just think about that attitude. And even that idea that I could be done with this, right? That's what people talk about when they use the term white privilege, right? That's an example of it, that I would have the privilege to be done with this conversation if I wanted to tomorrow. I don't have to think about race tomorrow if I don't want to as a white person. I have the privilege not to, the option to take a day off from it. Not everybody has that privilege. Whether you have that privilege or not this morning, as a church, we don't want to be a church that gives up on having the hard conversations that need to be had. We want to be a church that leans into those hard conversations. We want to be a church that's intentional about fighting prejudice. We want to be a church that's vulnerable, open with one another, confessing our racial prejudices to one another, and seeking the healing that comes as a result. That's painful work. Why do we think it's worth it? Because our Bible tells us that it's worth it. And I'm not just talking about the passages that specifically speak to ethnicity. I'm talking about the big picture of Scripture, the whole Genesis to Revelation story that tells us that all of us, red and yellow, black, brown, and white, we all have an equal place before God. Let's just finish this sermon by just walking through the Genesis to Revelation story briefly in two minutes and looking at how that story speaks to our issues of race and ethnicity. First, at creation. At creation, we see that we all come from Adam, all of us of every race, and so we're all made in the image of God. And that means that I must view you and you must view me as someone with incredible dignity and worth because no matter what ethnicity you are, I can see something of God reflected in you. We move from the doctrine of creation to the fall in Genesis 3. And in the fall, we see that we aren't just one in our creation, We're one in our corruption. None of us is exempt from the effects of the fall. We not only are all born into sin, just the same, but we all subsequently choose sin for ourselves, just the same. No one is righteous. No, not one, the Bible teaches. And so we can't view ourselves as higher than anyone else when we see ourselves as hell-bent rebels who are all in the same place, headed toward damnation. So the doctrine of creation speaks to our equality before God. The doctrine of the fall speaks to our equality before God. What about the cross? Well, we've already seen in Ephesians 2 that at the cross, Jesus dies. And he does so first and foremost to reconcile us vertically to God. But there's implications of that that spill out horizontally. And we see in Ephesians 2 that Jesus wasn't just dying to reconcile us vertically to God, but in the process... He was horizontally reconciling us to one another, even across ethnic boundaries. People groups that were hostile to one another become one in the body of Jesus Christ. And we see that the racial unity isn't just a social issue anymore. It's a blood issue. What about in our response to the cross, though? In our, in our response to the cross, we see that we all come to Jesus by faith, not by our works. And because it's not by our good works that we did, none of us can claim to have earned God's favor. None of us of any race. None of us of any race can claim that we have anything distinctive that commends us to God. But 
God saved all of us just because of his own good pleasure. So we see in creation, in the fall, at the cross, in our response to the cross, that we are equal before God. And in the final chapters of the Bible, we see this beautiful picture of us before the throne of God, forever and ever worshiping him. And it's every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we're reminded that if we don't really like being around people who are different from us or being around other languages, we're going to have a really hard time with heaven. Because what heaven's going to be is it's going to be these people delighted to be side by side with one another, different from one another, but in the presence of God, worshiping him for all of eternity. And that same neighbor love that we will have for all of eternity has been made available to us now. And that same Holy Spirit that will unite us together before the throne for all of eternity has purchased our unity now. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see that these race issues, they matter. These issues of ethnicity, they're not just social issues that are out somewhere on the periphery of our Christian belief. This has everything to do with Christ's blood. And to the extent that we are horizontally reconciled to one another, that says something to the world about the validity of our vertical reconciliation to God that we claim to have. If we are reconciled to one another, the world has reason to believe that we're, it's true that what we say that we've been reconciled to God vertically. But to the extent that we're not reconciled to one another across races, across ethnic groups here, the world has every right to question, well, how valid is it that you claim that you've been reconciled to God on the basis of what happened at the cross? Let's be a church that leans into these conversations. Let's be a church that makes room for one another to be honest, even if we accidentally mess up and say something offensive along the way. Let's be a church that gives each other the blessing of vulnerability. Let's be a church that continues confessing our sin and our prejudice to one another until that day that Christ returns. Hey, this has been a heavy message, and there's no more fitting way to uh, respond to a message like this one than to go to communion together as one, and we'll do so later in the service, but I'm aware that we may need some time to get there, and so um, we're going to sing a song before we go to communion, but before we even sing that song, we're just going to take just a, a minute or two of silence silent reflection to uh, let the Lord work in our hearts based on what we've heard. So um, let's go before the Lord in prayer and take to him our confessions and our prayers as we go before the Lord's table together, red and yellow, black, brown, and white. A couple minutes and we'll send you on your way. Address a few questions that were texted in. Um, someone asked, to this day, don't we still have segregation? Jews and Gentiles, are we not all God's children? And uh, the answer is yes, there's still segregation. Jew and Gentile be one example. Um, and even when segregation by law ended in this country, de jure segregation ended, de facto segregation, as many of you know, still continues and people separating for other reasons even though uh, the law isn't what's doing it anymore. So yes, segregation still exists and still is an issue that we need to uh, be working on. It's still alive and well. Next question, curious to know, what would you say to that Jewish man today about the savages surrounding Israel? I think that's a great question. I really wish I had that time back. Um, 
what I would say first is I would ask him, why do you say that? Um, why, why do you say that about them being savages and get to kind of hear what he would have to say and um, look for something in what he was saying that could give me an opportunity to share what I do believe about myself is that I'm one of those savages too. You're speaking to one of them. And it's only by the blood of Jesus that I have any hope of being anything different. Um, but by God's grace, I was born a savage and have lived as a savage for most of my life. And um, I need his help. Um, I've been a chance to share the gospel. Next one, why did you feel the need to preface your sermon here at North Sub with, you might get angry? Do you have doubts about the racial openness here? Um, Really, most, many of the things that I shared in my sermon, when I first heard them, made me angry. <laughs> and so I just know uh, my own journey along the way. And so I just wanted to share with you all at the outset where I've tried to make myself go now with my anger is, okay, let that be something that causes me to look inward and find that what's the treasure there that I feel like is being threatened at this moment. Um, and that's been uh, uh, revealing for me. So maybe that wasn't an issue for any of you today. Um, but I knew that it was for me. And finally, does the church have an office where we can bring forward racist concerns that we can confront collectively? Um, First of all, I just want to acknowledge um, the pain that whoever texted this in um, apparently has experienced um, in racist situations that they've seen and heard about here at this church. Um, if it deals with an individual, um, any of the pastors or elders would love to talk to you about that, and we would be prone to want to follow the process of Matthew 18 and go to the individual first and then bring another along if they won't listen and then take it to the church, unless it was something that the individual did publicly in front of everybody, because sometimes public sin needs to be addressed publicly. Um, So we'd love to talk to you about that process and walk through that with you in a biblically honoring way, but... This person might be texting this because of something that wasn't something necessarily that an individual did, but something embedded in even our structures and systems here as a church. That might very well be the case. And uh, if that's so, and that's why you texted it in, any of us pastors, elders, we would love that. That would probably be an elder-level discussion at some point, um, getting to hear from you what you've observed. And uh, we want to be reflecting on our own practices and looking at them introspectively at where they might not be honoring to the Lord. So uh, please do uh, uh, contact any of us pastors and elders about that. We would love to hear about it. We were in Ephesians 2 a few times today. Um, Let me leave you with the benediction that Paul leaves the Ephesians with at the end of that great book. Um, Would you rise and receive this benediction? It's a simple one. It's just this. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Go in peace.